0: Hello and welcome to another episode of That CI Podcast, That Creative Industries Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Ash and I am your host and guide through the world of creative industries and the people behind them. Today I'm chatting with Joel Waldfogel, an American economist and author. We'll be chatting about his book, Digital Renaissance, What Data and Economists Tell Us About the Future of Popular Culture. Before then, some housekeeping... Basically, if you like the show, if you like the website, you can support us in a couple of ways. You can share an article or an episode online. You can rate this podcast, hopefully highly, wherever you happen to come across it. And now you can join the Patreon. If you head to patreon.com slash podcast, you can sign up, support the project and get early access to episodes and interviews before they're released to the general public. So, onto the interview. I started my chat with Joel in the usual way by asking a bit about who he
1: is and what he does. Sure. I, I'm an economist and I, I teach at a business school. So, I teach economics to business students. And then the research side of my life is that I do research, well, basically on the creative industries. And in particular, on how digitization has affected creative activity in music, movies, books, television and so forth. So my 9 to 5 uh, it, it varies a bit day to day. I have a couple of different roles. I do I mean I teach, but I'm also part-time an administrative an administrator now, so I'm the associate dean for MBA and MS programs, which means I end up in a lot of meetings, which uh, if they if they weren't for a good purpose it would just make me sad. Uh, fortunately we have some some worthwhile purposes we're pursuing here but so a lot of my day is filled with meetings uh during teaching season big chunks of my day are filled with teaching and then whatever other time i can find is is really filled with uh, with research uh the sort of you know individual activity that's uh that i pursue with some passion
0: and would you say that you spend most of your time explaining creative industries to economists or vice versa
1: i think um When I'm communicating about research with people, it's usually explaining creative industries or economic phenomena occurring within creative industries to economists. I guess it's become a mix. In the old days, I would study these industries and just emphasize what was generally interesting to economists about them. Now I find myself talking to a a wider range of people, including people who don't care about economics per se, but are interested in the phenomena and what's been happening in the industries. So I guess for them, I'm explaining some mix of things that are happening many of which they know and a little bit about economics that might help them understand better uh, what's going on
0: that's interesting so so how did you begin your I, I guess academic career and 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 how did it get to to the point that you're at now
1: well i think like like a lot of people's careers many many happy accidents along the way i beginning i think Uh, my my I I grew up in the state of Minnesota which as I understood it had a requirement that students had to take an economics course in high school and I did that thought it was interesting and then did it in college now what I did in college had nothing to do with what I had done in high school but I thought that stuff in college was interesting too and I liked it enough to to decide to get a PhD rather than join the real world Uh, and so that's kind of a, a series of little you know little accidents that accumulate I did stumble or I guess uh, doubt, I, I experienced doubt in graduate school and, and went, left the PhD program and worked for a consulting firm for a while and decided that I wanted the research, uh, the research degree either way, whether I was going to go back to consulting or, or become an academic. And the when I went back to grad school, I really enjoyed working on topics of my choice. I discovered that that was something I really liked and so decided to go the academic route. But then I think a series of other kind of random events uh, ensued later. I mean, I came out of grad school studying, uh, of all things, the effect of criminal conviction on the lifetime earnings of ex-offenders, which is an interesting topic, although not of much interest to me anymore. And just based on the people I was working around in my first job, I got interested in industrial organization or the economics of industry. And through a series of random events, got interested in studying the radio broadcasting industry. And I studied that in the early 90s and, and that led to work on other media industries. All of this was pre-digitization. And you know, once you've written a few papers on a topic, it kind of makes sense to deepen your knowledge. But then digitization arrived and I was poised to think about how it affected the various industries I'd been looking at. I think at that point, uh, the, the event for, for a lot of us was Napster. And when Napster arrived and all of a sudden the recorded music industry was seeing its revenue plummet, my first thought was a very kind of 20th century thought, which was that, oh my gosh, you know, that the revenue is collapsing. And those of us who are willing to pay for things are going to suffer because there will be no new products and, and there will be so much loss of, of satisfaction and consumer surplus and all the rest. And so my, my first impulse in studying it was to try to understand just how, how destructive would be you know, the interruption of revenue flows to creative activity in these industries.
0: And I think with that, we are pretty much walking into uh, the book you've written. Digital Renaissance, what data and economics tell us about the future of popular culture?
1: Yeah, this book is about the effects that new technologies have had on creative activities in these industries. And really, the story of digitization begins with the story of the bad news of piracy, the collapse of revenue and the threat that we would no, you know, no longer get any new products and but but technology hasn't just been piracy we've had about 20 years almost since napster there's also the advent of of streaming uh which is you know both streaming and piracy are in some sense bad news in other senses good news but then on top of that we've had big reductions in the cost of making things so if you think about it there's like bad news on the revenue side there's potentially good news on the cost reduction side but then not so fast there's bad news because the inmates are now running the asylum. I mean, anybody can release things. There's no adult supervision. So it's not at all clear that we would end up post various technological changes in a good situation or a bad situation. I guess the title of the book tips my hand a little bit, but at least as of sort of going in, it's not clear what we're going to find.
0: Why would piracy mean that there are no new products? Like, What, what is the kind of for the feared mechanic there?
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, uh, what, what piracy brought to music was the, you know, the, uh, really a collapse of revenue. Between 1999 and about 2010, recorded music revenue fell by over half in, in essentially the whole world. The recorded music industry they tell us and i think it's true that it's a very investment intensive industry to bring a product to market the traditional major record labels are spending a million or more dollars for a new album by a new artist and the reason it costs so much is because they have expensive studios and highly skilled uh, you know technicians and then they have to get things onto the radio get videos made it's very expensive to bring a product to market but the tricky thing is that most new products fail so not only is it expensive just because it's expensive to bring things but you have to bring a bunch of failures as well as successes to make any money so it's just a, it's been a very expensive business and now if revenue falls by half the ability to invest in potential new products is really going to be curtailed and so that's where one could expect or fear uh, a real drop off in the creation of new products
0: how much of these changes that we saw at the you know at the, at the end of the 90s um, and, and going forward, how much of this is 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 really just about changes to technology, and how much of it, if any, is about changes to 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 industries and to to say IP law.
1: I think technology is really driving things. I mean, so it is true that the extent to which people can copy things uh, is driven by both law and technology. But what really happened was the advent of technologies that made it so easy to copy things that even though there were laws against it, the laws couldn't control the behavior. It's Somehow it's the laws in conjunction with the technology that determine what ultimately happens. And so in my mind, the first round of digitization was the advent of easy piracy, the easy ability to consume things without paying for them. Now, fortunately, that's not the only aspect of digital technology. That's not the only thing that digitization brought to the creative industries. But I think that was the first thing that digitization brought.
0: Why didn't these fears come true?
1: Well, because the what digitization also brought us was a, a reduction in the cost of producing most kinds of creative products. You know, if you think about production and distribution and promotion, uh, with each of these industries, so production in music used to entail a, a costly studio equipment, you know, skilled labor to produce uh, a recording, and then you need to make a physical copy and ship it to stores that needed to agree to stock it. Uh, All these things were were very expensive. What digitization allowed is with very low-cost technology, it was easy to record music. Also, because of digitization, it was possible to distribute things digitally. It didn't cost much at all to get your song available on iTunes, and all of a sudden, you had national or global distribution for something like $10, as opposed to the thousands of dollars it might have cost in the past to get things to market. And even promotion, promotion remains challenging. But there are a lot of ways for people to learn about the new products. So digitization enormously reduced the costs of getting products from the producer, from the artist over to the consumer. Right. So as revenues went down, so did costs. And so if revenues fall and costs fall, then it's hard to predict, you know, going in, it's hard to predict. Well, will this be the end of production or will costs fall enough that even with the challenges that revenue, the challenges that, that were experienced, uh, would there still be new production and, and I should say this is not just a book about music. Music is kind of the canary in the coal mine because piracy hit it first. But digitization has had interesting effects on all these industries. And in some ways, uh, you know, music experienced the negative shock to revenue. But in the other industries in books, in, in, in movies, uh, in television, although there always has been some piracy, there wasn't a cataclysmic reduction in revenue. So instead, what digitization really was in the other industries, it mainly operated through the reduction in costs. And so it was mostly digital good news instead of digital digital bad news, except for that adult supervision problem. Sorry, what's the adult supervision problem? Oh, yeah, I was hoping, I meant that to be a bit of a cliffhanger. So in the old (laughs) days, in all these industries, a person comes up with an idea, you know, a pitch for a film, uh, an idea for a, a, a book and a, whatever, and takes it to uh, one of these. I'm going to call them an investor, but really it's the it's the intermediaries. It's the the, the publishing houses. It's the uh, music uh, record labels, the movie studios and so forth. They have to decide, is this something that I want to greenlight and invest in? And uh, and so what most projects were rejected, only a small number were chosen to be greenlit and invested in and then there was some nurture there was some nurture and curation i mean there are these wonderful stories of bruce springsteen you know his first two albums weren't very commercially successful and nevertheless his label stuck with him and invested 14 months of studio time for the third album six months for the song born to run alone that's a real nurturing investment and it produced a great piece of commerce and art and there are many stories, you know, of, of, of publishing houses and editors spending a lot of time turning uh, indecipherable in manuscripts into classics. And those kinds of investments are really, well, were made possible by this old system where the wise men and women, mostly men, would decide to greenlight a small number of products, invest in them. But then because of the inherent unpredictability of creative products, most of them would fail anyways. Are the
0: gatekeepers more or less powerful post-digitization, in your view?
1: Well, I think it's a mixed bag. On the one hand, they can't they can't stop you. So if they say no, there are still many of other many other ways to get to market. There's indie, there's self-release, uh, and they they are, they do still seem to be very powerful in a lot of ways. They do still seem to be producing a lot of very successful music. Part of what they're doing, though, and this is not just true in music, but in all these industries, is they're able to rely on digitization as kind of a minor league that is you can watch people doing things at low cost and see which ones appear to have some appeal to consumers and then a major uh, major label or a major public, uh, publishing house can sign uh, a product and it's much more predictably successful and so the, the majors remain they, they continue to have an important role because they're really good at distributing things of broad appeal but the things of narrow appeal that weren't viable in the old model, they only came out as failures in the old model, are viable outside the major sector. So, I mean, it's kind of, yeah, on the one hand, the majors are still very important and successful, but there are, A, there are other ways to make it to market if you're not of super broad appeal. Plus, you can test yourself out, go on YouTube, get discovered, and then the major labels get to sign you as a more predictably successful product.
0: Right, so th- this is a landscape where um, v- very obscure acts can can find whatever audience there was for their art in the world. Like they they can find it because um, they they can you know access distribution basically freely. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, there is still revenue generation possible for Bruce Spring- Bruce Springsteen to spend six months in a studio.
1: Yes. I mean, my favorite example of this is probably from the book industry, where self-publishing has become the way for for, uh, our creators to circumvent gatekeepers to come to market. And so it's not just that there are lots of books that get published. I mean, there are, and lots of them, I'm sure, are terrible and unappealing. But what is really amazing is that if you look at the best sellers in the U.S., it used to be that 0% of them were books that had originally been self-published. Within a few years after the introduction of the Kindle, you know Amazon's uh, Amazon's device and ecosystem for selling self-published books, within a few years, about 10% of the best-selling titles were books that had come to market originally as self-published books. I mean, the most famous example is probably the Fifty Shades series. And I think serious critics would all tell you that it's artistically not very good, but it's very popular. And I think what's interesting about it is that, uh, you know, it's, it's people deride it as mommy porn or whatever you want to call it. But the point is, serious publishing houses looked at that and said, I don't see a product there that I would call a book and rejected it and things like it. But then when it went to market on its own and found great success, they said, oh, I see, that's a product. I will now re-release that. And so many of these self-published books that weren't recognizable as a product that the respectable industry ought to be selling found success outside the traditional system and taught the traditional system, oh, I should take that seriously as a product. Now, there's a different question about how seriously I should take it as art. But just from the commercial perspective, it was a market that was able to create itself Despite what the gatekeepers thought.
0: Yeah. And there are, I, I don't particularly buy into them, but there are some, some people who think that arguably the kind of quality of cultural products is falling. Uh, This is something I I don't particularly buy into.
1: No, but I'm with you. I mean, that's the problem, the absence of adult supervision. I think that it's worth a look to say, all right, so this stuff's making it through. It's finding success, but is it any good? So one of the more heroic things I attempt in the book is to try to document uh, two things. Uh, One is, or I should really say three things. One is, okay, is there more new stuff? And that's an easy one to document. Yes, there's more. There are more new products in all these industries, despite the collapse of revenue. This fall of co- reduction in costs seem to have outweighed it. So we have more new music, more new books, more new television, more new uh, movies. That's easy. Second question is: if you look at the stuff that currently succeeds, is a large and or growing fraction of it stuff that wouldn't have come through at all before? So I, I use this term uh, ex ante losers, meaning ex ante before the fact, you know, at the time the investors get the the pitch, there are the things they used to say no to, but that now make it through anyways. So I use the word ex ante losers to describe them is a growing share of the the ex post winners. That is the things that end up as best sellers in any of these markets. Are they things that wouldn't have made it through before? And the answer is pretty resoundingly yes. As I mentioned, the self-published book number in the romance category of self-published books, the share that came to market as self-published among bestsellers rose to fifty percent in the period not long after Kindle. I mean, that's just amazing. Half of the bestsellers were books that that didn't go through the traditional process. So yeah, so a a big a a big share of what's successful is stuff that really wouldn't have made it through before. But even that's not enough to convince us that we're in a digital renaissance. I think that the real question is the quality question: How good is new stuff compared to old stuff? And I, I recognize that you know this is a a hard, a a hard question. B a question that almost goes beyond what an economist is qualified to talk about. But but having said those things, let me forge ahead, <laughs> at least be try to be clear about how I'm going to measure these things. Um, and and for, so there, there are a couple of ways to measure quality. And I guess I'm putting the word and distance in quotes, at least in my head one way is is not aesthetic value but rather just do people like it is it something that people want let's, so so let's you might even prefer a word like appeal to the word like quality so in, in music uh, i have a way of getting at this that's uh, that's that's kind of interesting i think suppose you had data on the tendency for people to use or buy new versus old music so let's say it's the year 2010 and you can see of the people of the music that people are using, what, what share of it's from this year versus last year versus the year before and so forth. If you had such data, what you'd see is that people tend to use old music less than new music, just sort of standard depreciation. You look at what's on the radio or what's selling. That tends to be true. And we don't think that's because old music is bad. We just think that's because people get sick of stuff and they, they, they migrate to the new. But suppose you had that same kind of data for multiple years. So now what you you know from that is that on average, when music is, say, three years old, it makes up some share of this year's consumption. And on average, when music is four years old, it makes up some share of this year's consumption. Well, so after accounting for what share uh, uh, of consumption music would be by its vintage, the question is, are some vintages used more than normal, more than usual, and some used less than usual? And if you saw that some vintages – were used more than the typically used at their age, you might infer then those are the useful vintages. Those are the ones with durable music in them. And so hold that thought for a second, and let me talk about something a little different and easier, a different way to measure quality. Then I'll come back to those usage-based quality assessments. A more standard thing to do is to look at what critics say. So critics often make multi-year retrospective best of lists. The famous, maybe most famous example is Rolling Stones' 500 best albums of all time. Well, if you take that 500 best albums and you make a picture that puts the albums into the year they were originally released, what you'll see is that, according to Rolling Stone, music got better from 1960 to 1970, and it's sort of been getting worse ever since. Uh, and, and, anyways. But the question is, what happened after Napster? What happened when music collapsed? The music revenue collapsed. Rolling Stone did this a while ago, so I found a bunch of other critics who've done similar kinds of things, Pitchfork and just quite a lot of different outfits, professional outfits that have done multi-year retrospective lists. And what you see is that uh, as music revenue just collapsed after 1999, this index of quality put together from splicing these together, it doesn't fall at all. It just kind of remains steady at the level it had been at around 1999. Now. There is a lot to like and a lot not to like about what critics are saying. So let's go back to the usage-based stuff that I was that I was talking about, where you know you infer that a vintage is good from how much it's used more than vintages that how you know of that age are typically used. Here, here's what's interesting. I know that was a little gnarled as an explanation. If you look at the time series you get from this, it looks uh, they look the ones from airplay data or from sales data of music look a lot like what the 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 critic based index looked like they rise from 1960 to 1970 and then they fall and there's sort of stability between about you know the period 1980 to about 2000 the two that are based on usage the one based on airplay the one based on sales data after 1999 and again this is the period when revenue is collapsing what happens is these these quality indices, based on usage, rise substantially. They reach the level they hadn't seen since sort of the mid 70s. And so this is really kind of, to me, this is sort of stunning. With revenue's collapsing. You'd expect, uh, you know, a cessation of good new production. And instead, the stuff that's being produced is quite useful to people. You might call that quality. In fact, this was kind of the big aha moment for me in about 2011 or so when I got these data and I thought my goodness this is entirely different this is not at all what what uh, what I would have expected given what's happening to revenue. And just to go a little deeper into the intellectual history of this, I I was one of those guys in the early 2000s who was spending a lot of his research effort trying to understand the impact of piracy. And I had, you know, and it's actually a little bit hard to document the in, impact of piracy just because things that are stolen are popular so it some looks to some people as though piracy stimulates sales because things that get stolen a lot sell a lot but if you're careful about it you know and and, you you can see that piracy seems to actually be displacing sales so i was really that was my research program in 2005 and six i was trying to understand the impact of piracy you know fast forward six years to about 2011 and realizing oh the apparent quality of music seems to be rising, despite that you know that that enormous uh, reduction in revenue. Maybe I was asking the wrong question. Maybe the question isn't what's happening to revenue. Maybe the right question is what's happening to the quality and quantity of new creative products. People
0: like making art, um, and they seem to like doing it almost regardless of potential revenue.
1: Yeah, I think um, that's true.
0: And, and so – and to me, this is one of the things that this is – I'd put this on my list of, you know, what's so interesting about the creative industries. Um, could it be that this is quite a lot of explaining why there's still good art out there because we've reduced the 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 barrier to, to entry to basically zero uh, and so people are willing to make art? That doesn't mean that they're making money. This doesn't mean, you know, that the um, – that it's
1: economically interesting just because the quality hasn't dropped. Does does that question make sense? Yeah, I think so. And I would add one important wrinkle. So a big a, a big part of my story uh, hinges on two things together. One is costs fall, so many new people can try their hand, which is a really what what you're saying, and I agree that part of it is that part of the return to this isn't economic; it's just passion or love of doing it. But let's add one more thing to this uh, situation, which is that it's very unpredictable which products will succeed, and now. To think about how that affects how uh, cost reduction will, will, will affect consumers and, and the, the market, let's just think about the following for a second. Pretend that the, the success of, of, let's say, music or any new creative products was perfectly predictable. Let's pretend that for a second. Then if costs fell, then what would happen is that the intermediaries would now greenlight a bunch of new stuff. But all that new stuff would be worse than all the old stuff. So it would be valuable to consumers, but it wouldn't be enormously valuable to consumers. It would just be, oh, some marginally beneficial stuff. Maybe it would be valuable to some niche audiences. But in a world where quality is really unpredictable, and again, I, by quality, I just mean commercial appeal, if something happens and there's a tripling of the number of new songs, which is basically what happened, or a you know a factor of 10 increase in the number of new movies – if, if that's what happens and what's going on is like we're taking these random, you know, draws out of an urn or we're buying lottery tickets, as it were, a lot of it's going to turn out to be really bad, meaning appealing to very few people. In fact, you know, in talking about uh, self publishing, Corey Doctorow referred to one of the self publishing sites as an open slush pile, right? There, there is this view that there's a lot of garbage out there. And I'm sure that's, that's right. But because of this unpredictability, lots of new stuff, maybe most of it's a slush pile but a few of those things aren't. And that's what really matters. So it's yes, many people can try, the point you made, many people can try, many new products can sort of take a take a take a shot. A lot of them are bad but a few of them turn out to be really good and that's why I and that's why I think it's really important that when we see a large and growing fraction of the commercially successful products, being the products that couldn't have made it through before, that's consistent with the story that really propels the digital renaissance. It's not just that we can get a bunch of new stuff. It's that we can get a bunch of new stuff. And since we can't predict, a bunch of that stuff turns out to be good.
0: So it's 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 these lottery tickets that strike it big, which were previously not being purchased, or I exactly not sure what the metaphor is, not being printed or something. Yes, uh, this <laughs> yes. this is kind of um, this is where the growth is coming
1: from. Yeah. So I, I'm a you know I'm, you can probably date me from my cultural references, but Tom Petty has this had this song called "Even the Losers Get Lucky" sometimes. And I have this tendency to refer to these products that wouldn't have gotten through before, but that can get through now as ex-anti-losers. And I think we're living in an era in which the losers are getting lucky. Um, I was looking at
0: a, a piece about uh, Netflix. Yes. Um, could, could you give
1: us an overview of, of what, what this article is about? Sure. Yeah. So So – There's sort of two issues floating around here. I mean, this, the narrow question in the the paper about Netflix is, is Netflix essentially uh, a a mechanism by which, let's say, US and Anglophone cultural products are being rammed down the throats of the rest of the the rest of the world? Or is Netflix a mechanism by which cultural trade occurs in in kind of multiple directions and actually, you know, introduces Danish uh, movies to Americans, uh, to, to be sort of blunt about it? And, And and just to contextualize, before trying to answer the question, let me just say that the broader version of this is kind of the global version of digitization. Lots of new products can become available, and it's cheaper to make them available across borders. This is really true for music and movies. Uh, In the music example, you know, to sell a a piece of music abroad, you had to find a label that would print it abroad and then record stores had to carry it abroad. And since most products fail, that was expensive. And so Norwegians rarely had a chance to sell their music in the US. But with digitization, so this is going to be about Netflix and Spotify, uh, a lot of things get made available to a lot of people and it doesn't cost is you know it's not like the costliness of theatrical distribution where you need to find you know lots of people near a physical theater to watch something. Stick it on Netflix. If you can find 50,000 people across the globe, it might be a winner. So I did this paper a few years back. I think I talk about a little bit in the book, but I looked at 50 years of basically trade data for popular music. So I created trade data out of pop charts across many countries. And the, the notion there was that, well, the 90s, this isn't really digitization, but it kind of is. There's the Internet. There's MTV. There are these various technological threats to culture. And, you know, in the early 90s, the French were lobbying pretty hard for a cultural exception to free trade precisely because they thought technology would would swamp their products and, and American music and British music would swamp their all of their cultural patrimony. Um, and so what was interesting is in this kind of era looking right up till about 2000, surprisingly, the domestic shares of consumption and music were rising despite these technological threats like MTV and the Internet but i kind of did that too soon because digitization really happened in music with the itunes music store in 2003 at least in the us and then a few years later elsewhere and then with spotify in 2008 through 11 because with that not only i mean at that point everything was available everywhere and with spotify essentially everything was available everywhere where you don't even have to pay an extra dollar or an extra penny to hear another song and so if the french were scared in 1990 they should have been really scared in 2008 but a funny thing happened. The, the, and this is, this is also in the book. I mean, the, the, what happened with Spotify, uh, the availability of everything everywhere was that it really advantaged. It really seemed to advantage the small countries because they had had trouble distributing their stuff everywhere. Whereas the American music was already kind of available everywhere. And so this is a sense in which technology was, uh, uh, you know, really helping the small guys even though I think traditionally cultural policy has been about technology hurting the small guys but I don't think that's what ha- is happening at all with digitization
0: so to to circle around to Netflix again uh, what is the what, what was the conclusion
1: Yeah. so so the the uh, the question there again is, is is essentially is it like American stuff being made available elsewhere or is it stuff from all over being made Everywhere else, and there you need to say, well, compared to what? So we, we compared uh, Netflix' pattern of availability of products across places to what's happening in theaters, and meaning, you know, through theatrical distribution, the traditional way that that stuff was distributed. And the answer is that Netflix, although kind of everything is less available because Netflix is a funny curated platform. They have a small number of products because, you know, it's it's a subscription service. So they just want to buy enough things to get you to subscribe. But nevertheless, relatively speaking, it was not the U.S. content that was relatively more available on Netflix. It was actually a lot of uh, Scandinavian countries uh, that were relatively advantaged by Netflix. Now, it's early days. I mean that was a study of Netflix based on not not streaming behavior but cons- but availability of products across places. And Netflix has been going you know that was like 20 billion dollars ago in terms of Netflix investment they have literally been spending 6 8 10 billion dollars a year creating content and a lot of that content is not in English and I think they're experimenting they're trying to figure out should I just Create, You know, will, will products, you know, in in uh, in Flemish Dutch just be interesting to Belgians or will Americans watch them? Will the stuff in Japanese be interesting to just the Japanese audience or will Americans or, you know, Americans and others? They're figuring this out and that will determine ultimately whether Netflix. You know the extent to which it's just a series of disconnected regional services, or whether there's some global content that will be appealing to people. But what's just not at all obvious is that the global content will be just American content, the way um, distribution of American products across the world has always worked. It's entirely possible that it'll be more of a mix consumed, you know, in different places from different places. Just as
0: as an aside, how many researchers do you think would love? netflix to open the doors
1: on on that data oh my goodness well I, i'm first in <laughs> line but yeah a lo- everybody i mean it's not just the researchers i mean this is actually there's a serious concern here which is that a lot of uh, these industries find themselves sometimes asking for help and policy relief and, and so forth and yet we really don't have much data i mean the uh like books have become I mean, Nielsen still has data on books, but a lot of the books are being sold as electronic books at Amazon. Only Amazon has the data. A lot of movie consumption is at Netflix. They don't share it with anyone. We don't really know what's going on. And I mean, to take a specific example, the Europeans still uh, provide enormous subsidies to domestic, that is, European production of film. And, you know, if you think about digitization and it's reducing the cost of making things, well whether one really needs to provide those subsidies is a question of some policy significance since it's the governments that are providing the subsidies but without having good data on consumption it's hard to know and we're kind of driving blind right now in this in this digital era
0: regardless of what people are watching is it inherently problematic that there is now basically a film monopoly in in the world um, and if, if, if that's fine, you know, what does the problem look like to you? What, what could it be?
1: Yeah, no, I think there are two, two problems that come to mind. Uh, let me start with one that I hear a lot of people talking about, which is that although you know, I claim, and I think it's true, that lots and lots of creators can create their products and make them available to consumers, there are also a lot of creators who say, gosh, I'm really not getting paid very much. And some part of that had been piracy, but some part of that is other things. I mean, some artists complain a lot about the volume of payments they get from streaming music, for example. And so there is potentially... There is potentially a threat to continued creation just from the, the ability of artists to support themselves. Now, having said that, I also have to say that there's no evidence in the production statistics of anything like that. Right, So there are a lot of artists who say these are terrible times, but at the same time, they create so darn much good stuff that it's, it's hard to, you know, it's, hard. it's not that I don't believe them, but it's just, and it may be that they're drawn to create for non-economic reasons. And so they're sort of drawn to their suffering the way mathematicians are drawn to their proofs. But so that's one. I think the other one though is, is is about the concentration of power in a small number of platforms. You know, I think back to the the, the good old days, so-called good old days in the late '90s in the U.S. Uh, a lot of the in, folks in the music industry were concerned because uh, of the Walmart's you know stranglehold on retailing, which amounted to you know 20% of music sales maybe were going through Walmart. Now, if you think about the way that system worked, you know there were a, bunch of record labels, a few big ones and a bunch of little ones. And then there were really hundreds, if not thousands, of independent decision makers between the production decision and the consumption decision. It was a bunch of radio stations and a bunch of record stores. And they were all pretty much independent. And then Walmart gets 20% of the retailing side and the uh, the record industry is worried about power. Today, we Have essentially two major interactive streamers, Apple Music and Spotify. I mean, I know there are others, various places in the world, there's Deezer and there's non interactive streaming, but really we're kind of converging on two products. And those products or those platforms are both the radio station and the record store because that's where the money gets made. When the stream occurs, the artist gets a, or the rights holder gets a payment. But that streaming service is also deciding what to essentially promote via its playlists. So it's kind of a. If you thought 20% of retail was scary, <laughs> uh, you know, having just a couple of players left making essentially all the decisions is is very scary. Now, having said that, you know, I'm not seeing a lot of harms. I've studied Spotify as closely as as I can with the data I can get my hands on. And on the one hand, it is true that Spotify is powerful. Maybe that's not surprising. If Spotify puts your song on today's top hits your song gets an additional 80000 in revenue. I mean, 20%, 25% of its total streams ever are attributable to the fact that it made it onto that playlist, according to my estimates. So they are powerful. They can determine kind of who gets bigger returns than, than, than others. On the other hand, I don't know of any evidence that they're doing it in an underhanded way. There's lots of reason to be suspicious and to want to look at them, but I don't have any evidence that they're behaving badly. So I, you know, I think we should be super vigilant. We should have data, you know, there are, in the U S there are politicians during campaign season calling for breaking up the tech firms. They don't know about Spotify, so they don't talk about that, but how about just getting some data so we can monitor what's going on? That's what I would say.
0: If, if you were to make a prediction about what the digital landscape for cultural, um, goods looks like in five to 10 years, uh, what what's different and and what's what do you think is the same? Have we reached a kind of logical conclusion here with you know infinite free streaming whenever you want?
1: Well, I think one thing that's going to happen is this this competition to be the winning platform. So in the US, uh, you know, we have uh, um, Netflix, we have Hulu. We have uh, Amazon Prime, we have HBO, but now we have Disney getting into the act and others getting into the act. Many deep pocketed players are competing to be the platform that we watch and they're gonna continue throwing enormous amounts of money at this. And so it's gonna be just an absolute bonanza for consumers for easily five more years until there's some shakeout. I mean, it's, it's no exaggeration to say that Netflix spent 10 billion to play in this game. Others are gonna have to spend similar kinds of numbers. They won't spend probably that much. But I so I think it's we're just going to sit back and enjoy the show for a while, uh, at least as a medium term prediction. I think also, and just and if I can kind of predict a continuation of present trends, a lot of the calamitous revenue experiences um, were uh, reversible by taking advantage of something digitization could offer and has begun to offer, which is when you're selling a big, pile of digital things you can just put them all together and sell them under a subscription service and that allows uh, the seller to take advantage of well economists call it bundling but it's just a fancy way of saying that you know you can basically get money from people's willingness to pay even tiny amounts of money for particular elements of the bundle they never would have bought a loan so when you sell it as a bundle you can make a lot more money and that started to happen in the past few years for music Music revenue fell for over 10 years and actually has risen in the past couple of years because of uh, subscription sales at basically Spotify and Apple Music. I think we're gonna, just going to see more of that in, in, uh, in movies and music, and eventually we're going to see it in books so that we'll actually have um, good news for these entities that have long been threatened by new technology. Good news because they can make more money
0: which is interesting because of course one of the things that the internet did originally was unbundling um and that yes. that, that, that so it, it could be that that um Bundling is the secret sauce that that makes art. Well, it's um, funny because financially viable.
1: You know, you're absolutely right. The the uh, iTunes unbundled the album, but the album was although a bundle, it was a terrible example of a bundle because it was a bundle of of things that were very much like one another. An ideal bundle puts things that are rather different into the same bundle, and so people with very different preferences want to buy the same bundle, whereas only people who like Coldplay want to buy a Coldplay album but everybody likes music. So everybody wants some music bundle.
0: Right. So deep pockets and the return of bundling. That's what it looks like. Yes. Okay. That's, yes, uh, I'll, I'll come back in uh, 2024 and uh, we'll see how that's
1: going. <laughs> that sounds good to me.
0: What's next for you and where can people find you on the internet?
1: Uh, I guess I'm the only person with my name. So just Googling me and they'll, they'll find me. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Jay Waldfogel. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, I'm, you know, I'm continuing to work on these issues about, you know, uh, for example, uh, the Spotify playlists and other, I mean, what's the role of discretionary recommendations in the future versus the crowd and so forth? So I'm currently working on some stuff about comparing impacts of New York Times book reviews to you know, book reviews from crowd reviewers at Goodreads. But I think this generic set of topics about what's the continued role for humans who have discretion? Uh, in guiding our consumption decisions is an interesting question.
0: The curation and, and taste making
1: issues. Yes, downstream of production. Now, there's, there's also this curation and adult supervision in the kind of critic sector. And do we need the pros or can we rely on the amateurs? I don't know the answer. I hope to know the answer in, a, in the next few months or a year.